The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. So uh, next week we're going to start the book of Hosea. And we, we technically finished uh, the book of Revelation um, Wednesday before last, but I've had um, a few requests to do a recap. And <clears throat> I just I want to tell you that how uh, challenging that is. Um, this would end up being our 89th sermon in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is fast for us. We started this September 23rd, 2020, right in the middle of COVID. And <clears throat> as of tonight, I, I myself have... 341 pages of notes of teaching for the last however long. And so you, you okay, a recap. Um, so where, where do you even begin, right? Um, and maybe better yet, how do you end? So I'd have been totally content two weeks ago just to end there, but... So I was thinking about this today and just the, the, um, the approach. And so what we're going to do, and I hope this is edifying, because if it's not, then blame the people that asked for the recap. Um, we're going to review the purpose of the book, all right? I, th- I think in asking for a recap, what people want is some kind of overview or summary that they can kind of hang, you know, put their their thoughts on, pegs that they can kind of put some thoughts on. So we're going to look at the purpose of Revelation, then we're going to look at the themes and the structure, and um, and then make some conclusions. And so uh, if this actually helps kind of bring things together, then great. Uh, so as we, we think about this book, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 1. This is going to be a long recap. We'll be here until next month. We have the the, uh, verse 1, 1, 1, the revelation, um, the apocalypsis, the unfolding, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So right away, it's, it's different than the book of Daniel. Daniel is seal up the words of this prophecy. Revelation opens with, this is an apocalypsis, this is an unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants uh, the things which must soon take place. There's going to be this, this repeated phrase of, this stuff's going to happen soon. And he sent and communicated it, that is, signified it by sign, communicated by sign, by his angel to his bondservant, John. And so we open up this book and we realize that it's actually three different things, right? So first, it's, it's, it's an epistle, right? It, in, it begins like an epistle, it ends like an epistle, and you have seven epistles in chapters two and three. And so there is that kind of flavor to it, but it also refers to itself multiple times as this book of prophecy, right? 
And so it is a prophetic book, but it's not a prophetic book just in the simple sense like, let's say, Isaiah or Zephaniah was a prophetic book. It is a prophetic book that is conveyed through apocalyptic imagery. Okay? By the way, that's the significance in, in one one where uh, it says that he communicated by sign. He signified, right? So the language itself is symbolic all throughout. And if, so if, by the way, if the Bible tells you that, that, that this is symbolic, it's signified by sign, okay? Then you can't just, in a bullheaded way, say, well, I'm still going to interpret it literally, okay? You have to interpret it in the way that it reveals itself, right? And so just sort of a, some dogged determination out of, out of a sense of principle of, of literalism um, violates the very, uh, the very genre of the book, which is apocalyptic. And, of course, apocalyptic uses imagery, language, that would have um, connected especially with the first century audience. But here's the thing. Most of the apocalyptic imagery in the book of Revelation comes from where? What? From the Old Testament. The, um, the number of um, actual citations of the Old Testament um, are, are relatively um, small compared to the number of allusions to the Old Testament. Um, the the uh, Nestle Allen 28th edition of the Greek New Testament says there's 628 Old Testament allusions in the book of Revelation. So the apocalyptic imagery that you get comes from books like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, right? And Daniel very heavily. So you have this book that is sort of like three different things all smashed together. By the way, Daniel and Ezekiel are both are apocalyptic, as is Zechariah. And so you've got an epistolary type letter um, that is filled with apocalyptic imagery that's a prophecy, right? That's the book of Revelation. And so when you think about Old Testament apocalyptic literature or even Old Testament prophetic literature, um, Revelation is doing, the book of Revelation is doing the same thing as those books did, which is, which is not to uh, unlock some secret code. Some of the, if you want to see some crazy stuff, just go to YouTube and type in the book of Revelation, okay? Like 99% of it will be bad (laughs) because it'll be like crazy code cracking stuff, all right? And, and, And that's not what, that's not what the prophets were about. That's not what the book of Revelation is about, um, the, the prophets, by the way, didn't spend the majority of their time just simply predict, predicting future events. Okay? They did that, but that was a relatively small 
amount of what they did. Most of what they did was they called Israel back to repentance through lawsuit oracles. And in a very real sense, the book of Revelation is one of these books that's not just, in a sense, simply predicting future events, but it is actually challenging and encouraging God's people in time of crisis. Okay? That's what the book of Revelation is doing. So are there implications for how we understand how the end is? And the answer is, of course. Are there implications for how we understand the present? Of course, through the lens of, of, of Revelation. Are there implications for how we understand the past, especially the first century? And the answer is, of course, of course to all of those things. But the book of Revelation is an exhortation, a prophetic exhortation to actually challenge and encourage the people of God to remain faithful in tribulation and times of crisis. So when does the church go through tribulation, and times of crisis. Always, (laughs) right? So that means, here's one takeaway. The book of Revelation is therefore always applicable and relevant to us, all right? From generation to generation, okay? And and, and I want to say, too, that... um, that when we get enamored in, in what we consider to be specific future event, prophetic detail, what we end up doing a lot of times is missing the heart and soul of the book, which is to challenge and encourage us to be faithful in the midst of opposition, hostility, and even persecution. And so Brian Tabb in... Um, in, in this book, really, I'm going to recommend some stuff at the end. This little book, All Things New, Revelation as Canonical Capstone. Wonderful, wonderful book. Um, he says this. He says, Revelation is written to help the saints resist worldly compromise, spiritual complacency, and false teaching. Brian Tab, T-A-B-B, because I knew you were going to ask, how do you spell that? <laughs> I suffer from PTSD because of you. All things new, revelation as canonical capstone. It's thematic or biblical theological approach to the book of Revelation. Fantastic. Um, I'm putting it down now. Anybody going to ask again? All right, good. Okay, copyright, I, I don't know. Okay, number two. This is related. So the purpose of the book of Revelation is to do what? Is to, to, to encourage the church, first of all, to stay faithful in the battle. Is there a battle going on in the book of Revelation? Yes. Are there people who are actually uh, caving in in the battle? Okay, are there, do the people of the world actually align themselves on the wrong side of the battle, right? So, so revelation is, is exhorting us 
to stay faithful in the battle and to persevere in the midst of persecution while maintaining a prophetic witness. And I don't mean that in a weird way. I'm talking about the two witnesses in in, in chapter 11 to maintain a prophetic witness to a hostile world. And so, um, what do we do in our... um, in, in our prophetic witness to a hostile world, what are we doing? We're actually witnesses to the world for the risen Lamb, who is this world's only hope. And so, on the one hand, what is the church doing in its prophetic witness to the world that hates it? We are continually pointing people to the lamb standing as if as slain, right? Revelation chapter 5. We're pointing people to the victorious lamb. And that lamb actually is the one who provides redemption and he reigns. Okay? This isn't, by the way, this isn't just simply about saving souls. This is about also as you are loyal and allegiant and, 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 and have allegiance towards the Lamb, that also means that you are opposed to this world system, which is both religious and political. By the way, so, so our message, understand this, so our message is not um, is not in one sense a political message. But our message is most certainly a message that has massive political implications. Because the minute that you say, the lamb wins, okay, that you have massive implications. The minute that you say, the son of God reigns, massive. And so, so for us as Christians, we actually cannot go along with this present evil age in its religious and political systems. By the way, religion and politics, they say don't mix religion and politics. This world system is actually the quintessential mixture of religion and politics because their politics is their religion. If you're a Christian, that's not you. If you're a Christian, you don't compromise with this present evil age. And so, um, (laughs) to simply proclaim that the risen lamb reigns, that makes us dangerous revolutionaries. who are more than willing to suffer for our message. Right? The minute you say the risen lamb, he reigns. You have just said something that is absolutely revolutionary. And what is it? What is it about our message? When you, when you look at Revelation 5, and you see this, this conquering lamb, and you see a throne... 
we are, we are reminded that those who love power and want to be God will hate us because we will never give our loyalty to them. Okay? That's, that's just the simple fact. And so, I don't think it's any secret. We have enjoyed in this country religious and civil liberties for a very long time. And if you, if you know, if you understand, in a sense, what's going on right now, there is, a, there is a deepening divide that is over who are you going to be loyal to, which is exactly what the first century Christians had to deal with. Okay. So Revelation basically equips us to stay in the battle, don't compromise, persevere. Finally, the challenge and the encouragement... To be faithful, persevere, comes through (laughs) helping the church see things as they really are. By the way, what what, what does Revelation 4 and 5 do in the book of Revelation? uh, Revelation 4 and 5 does a whole lot of things, but one of the things that it does is it pulls back the curtain to show Christians on earth the way things really are, right? So, in other words, there is a throne, and Caesar doesn't sit on it, God does, right? There is, there is a true sovereign who really is governing all of creation, and it is not the Roman Empire, okay? Or any political party today, right? So, Revelation actually equips us to... To withstand, perse- uh, to withstand persecution and to be faithful even unto death by showing us the way things really are. So, so here, do you need eyes of faith to see things as they really are? Yes. And in fact, if you don't have eyes of faith, you cannot see things as they really are. You can only see things as this present world system under Satan's power wants you to see them. That's all you see if you don't have eyes of faith. Eyes of faith gives you perspective to actually see things the way they really are and how are, um, how are things really. There is a lamb that is going forth, conquering, saving a multitude that no one can number. There is a God who sits on a throne and he is the ruler of the nations of the earth. And there, yes, there are, there are, for lack of a better word, there are villains. There is the dragon. There are the two beasts. There's the false prophet. And guess what? All they are is counterfeit wannabes. That's it. And so Revelation puts something into our souls, gives us confidence. And so here's what Revelation teaches us, is that because Jesus Christ has already conquered, his last day victory is absolutely certain. It is not 
in question. All right? And because of that, you conquer as well. Now, we may conquer even though we die. We may conquer even through suffering. So understand that that this this vision of the church that that rides on the coattails of Jesus' victory is not some kind of triumphalism. It is a victory that comes just like Jesus' victory that comes through suffering and maybe even death. Okay. And by the way, that's where the church shows its ultimate strength. The church doesn't show its ultimate strength in our mega churches. I hope you know that. I hope you're not like, wow, that place can seat 20,000 people. Okay? That's, that's not. You, you know where the strength of the church is? The strength of the church is in the underground church in China. Right? The strength of the church is, in, is throughout Africa and throughout that 1040 window. The strength of the church is in people that love Jesus so much that they don't love their own lives even unto death. That's where the strength of the church is. And Revelation says it's worth it because in the end, you win. And you win big, like really big. Okay. That brings us to, the, at this rate, we'll have to do five recaps. Um, so that brings us to themes and structure. So there are a number of contrast reversals and counterfeits in Revelation. It's important to see these because this is a part of being able to see things the way that they are. Okay? So let me just run through these. So you have, you have two cities. You have Jerusalem slash Babylon. And then you have the new Jerusalem. Right? The new Jerusalem is the true city of God because it's the true people of God. Um, frankly, the, the, the picture of this present Jerusalem, which, which is consistent with Paul, for instance, in Galatians 4, is that it's like Sodom and Egypt. Okay? So I would argue that, that at least in the first century, as, as Babylon is described in 17 and 18, um, a lot of your first century readers would have actually seen um, Jerusalem being described in Babylonian terms. Okay. So, do the prophets ever say that Jerusalem is a harlot? Yeah, like lots. All right. Um, so if you have, if you have, then you have two women in Revelation. You have the true bride, the pure bride, but then you have. Babylon, which is what? She's a harlot, right? So you've got the harlot, who's the unfaithful wife, and then you have the faithful bride, which is, of course, the bride of Christ. You also have contrasts uh, in terms of animals. So Jesus is presented metaphorically as the lamb of God, right? The lamb. But then you have, in Revelation 13, you have... Well, Revelation 12, you have a dragon, but then in Revelation 13, you have two beasts. Those beasts are actually composite beasts from the book of Daniel. 
All right? So you have <laughs> the, um, the way that the beast is described, it has certain lamb-like character, but it's counterfeit, right? So you've got the true lamb, you've got the fake lamb, you've got the, the, the true son of God, you have, well, you could say it this way, you have the true trinity, and then you have the counterfeit trinity, right? In Revelation. Um, also, the lamb, uh, so in terms of like reversals, um, you have to appreciate some of this. This is my favorite. So you have in Revelation 5, you have the, the angel. So um, you got the scroll, right? You got the, this picture of the scroll. And there's an angel who declares who's worthy to come and to take the scroll, not just open it, take it from the, the one who sits on the throne and open it, right? And so then there's silence, And John begins to weep. And the angel says, why are you weeping? And he says, because there's no one worthy to come and open the scroll. So as long as the scroll is is rolled up and not opened, then it's as if God's sovereign plan doesn't unfold. And so John's standing there weeping. And then the angel says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to come and to take the scroll and open it. And then John says, and I, look, and I looked and I saw a lamb standing as if slain. Right, so this is the beauty of Revelation. The angel says, lion of the tribe of Judah. John looks up, doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Why? Well, because the lamb is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse. And so you have all of these, these wonderful contrasts, these wonderful reversals throughout the whole book. If you read slowly enough, what you find out is, uh, is that John loves um, triads, groups of three. You'll see this over and over and over again. So when I'm reading Revelation, I'm like marking those three, right? And, and you, see, you see the Trinity everywhere in the book of Revelation, okay? And so you see all of these marvelous uh, reversals, all of these marvelous counterfeits. Um, not marvelous counterfeits. There's no, so, okay. But um, it, it, like from a literary perspective, it really is, is quite something. And, um, and then you have, you have certain reversals. And so one of those would be, for instance, where uh, uh, Jesus is addressing, I think it's the church in Smyrna, and he says where Satan's throne is. There's synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews, but they're not. Then John turns around and takes the passage from Isaiah, I think Isaiah 60, about the Gentiles bowing before the Jews, and he turns it. So that those that didn't worship, those Jewish people that didn't worship Jesus are now in the position of being Gentiles that are bowing at the feet of, in a sense, the true circumcision, 
that worship Jesus in the Spirit of God. Okay? Those reversals are all throughout. By the way, Paul uses those reversals. He used, has already used them in uh, Romans chapter 9. Okay, so that brings us now to the structure. And this is, this is sort of the tricky part because what we're, what we're used to doing is um, sort of having a view of Revelation where you go, okay, well, you've got this stage, and then that stage gives birth to this stage, and then this stage. And so it's very linear, all right? So unfolds just very linear. And I'm going to argue that that is not the pattern of the book of Revelation. And so uh, it is what we would call progressive parallelism. We've talked about this before with the idea of recapitulation. So one example of recapitulation is the prologue, Revelation 1, 1 to 8, and it is recapitulated, that it is recapped at the end of the book, and you have the same elements in both the prologue and the epilogue. Why do you have that? Because it's structuring the book, okay? It's bookends. What happens is that in between the bookends is you get these cyclical patterns, all right, that go from this bookend to that bookend. And you get these cyclical patterns, and you have, you have themes that overlap, all right? So instead of it just being a flat line, you go from here to here to here to here to here to here, okay? It is more cyclical and parallel, all right? So uh, Dennis Johnson says, the way that we understand these these parallels is like from different camera angles, okay? And so this kind of structure, you go, well, would people have understood that? And the answer is yes. There are major sections of the book of Ezekiel that are structured in this way. There are sections of the book of Daniel that are structured this way. And I would argue that even 1 John is actually a book of cyclical recapitulation, right? And so what ends up happening is you've got the bookends, and so then you've got then you've got seals. How many seals? Seven. Then you have trumpets. How many trumpets? Okay. And then you have bowls. How many bowls? Oh. So there's seven. Is seven an important number in the book of Revelation? It's massively important. What does it communicate? Completeness. Okay. Completeness. Now, by the way, there's all kinds of sevens in the book of Revelation. And so what happens is, um, and this is the way I used to think about it. You had the seals, and then once the seals were done, then you had the trumpets, and then once the trumpets were done, then you had the bowls. And I don't think that's what Revelation's doing at all. I think what the Revelation is doing is you have the seals, right? And those seals actually describe for us entire inner advent period between the first, um, uh, the ascension and the second coming, okay? So those seals represent the entirety of what we could call, just simply call the church age. Then you get to the trumpets, and the trumpets are doing the same thing. They're seven. They're describing the same period of time. They're overlapping, all right? Then you get the, uh, the bowls, and again, 
they, they span the time between the ascension and then the second coming. And so you've got these on top of each other, all right? Now, hang with me for a second. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls span the time between, in a sense, the first and second advents. Now, how do we, how do we know that for sure? And the answer is, is that all of those end with a judgment salvation cycle. Okay? So you get to the end of the seals, and what do you have? Judgment and salvation. You get to the end of the trumpets, what do you have? Judgment and salvation. You then get to the end of the bowls, what do you have? Judgment, big time judgment and salvation. And so, you understand that if you take it just in a sense like chronological or linear, then what you end up having are final judgments and final salvations. Okay? You understand what I'm, what, what I'm talking about? If they overlap, they're all pointing to the same final events. All right? Now, what that means is that, um, is that you have these parallel ideas. So now we're going to just zip through this. So Revelation 1 through 3. So what happens in Revelation 1? We'll test your memory. What happens in Revelation 1? What's that? Okay. More importantly, John sees the Son of Man. Okay? Revelation chapter 1 is a description, magnificent description, of the Son of Man in his glorified state. And he's dressed in a certain way. And what you see of the Son of Man in Revelation chapter 1, by the way, John falls at his feet as if he's dead. What you have is the Son of Man presented as the king priest. He's wearing priestly garb, and he reigns. So he's the king priest, all right? Then you get to Revelation 2 and 3. So what's Revelation 2 and 3? Seven letters of seven churches. And... Who's actually speaking to the seven churches? Son of God. Okay? Son of God. Through his messenger or the angel of the church. But it's the Son of God. And you've got seven churches. Were there more than seven churches? Of course. Were there more than seven churches in Asia Minor? Yes. Why seven? Comprehensive view of the church, right? In other words, these seven represent the totality of the church. And so what ends up happening? Who is the great prophet who speaks by the Spirit to each of the churches? Son of God. So you've got the glorified, exalted Jesus in chapter 1 is the priest-king, Chapters 2 and 3 
he's the church's great prophet. Right? Now that should like ring bells and make you excited. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. All right? Um, I have a chart here for you so that you can see. So um, Ephesus ticks all of the boxes, both commendation and criticism. Smyrna, commendation, no criticism, therefore no call to repentance. Pergamum, commendation, criticism. Thyatira, commendation, criticism. Sardis, no commendation, only criticism. Philadelphia, only commendation, no criticism or call to repentance. And then Laodicea, no commendation. All right? So you can see that. Um, so what, what is the church actually facing as Jesus addresses each of these churches? Some of the churches, like Sardis or Smyrna, are, they're, they're wealthy. They're fine. Right? So their problem is going to be compromised with the world. Church like Philadelphia is small and suffers persecution, right? Ephesus is the church that's lost its first love, right? So, so you can see all of these different. So the exhortation is to the one who overcomes, and then there's reward. So the, ex, so the message to each of the churches is that you need to be overcomers. You need to persevere all the way, right? Which means you don't compromise, you don't cave in, you remain faithful even to the end, all right? Then you get this throne room scene of chapters 4 and 5, and you got the throne, you've got worship, and there's this heavenly assembly, and then the Lamb appears, and he's the risen conqueror who has actually purchased for himself a people, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. We read these, these real, and the, the worship of Revelation 4 and 5 is just, thrilling, all right? Um, And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And so those who have been purchased, redeemed through the blood of of the Lamb actually share in his priesthood, kingdom of priests, and they share in his kingship. They'll rule upon the earth. Absolutely magnificent. Then the seven seals get opened, right? And this is where Clint Eastwood appears as the pale rider. Um, The seals get opened... And basically what ends up happening is you can look at the sixth seal in chapter 6. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So this is, this is um, cosmic upheaval. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, which is another way of saying what? Everybody. They all sang uh, the hallelujah chorus. No, they hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's final judgment. And it's final judgment right here in the sixth seal. And what happens is there's an interlude but it's not really an interlude. Um, my Bible says an interlude. Um, what happens is you have this picture of final judgment, but then John sees another picture. And what he sees in that other picture is actually two different angles of the redeemed. 144,000, right? By the way, again, think about it. What is 144,000? It's 12 times 12, right? 12 times 12,000. I know that 12,000 or 144,000 isn't 12 times 12. I know that's 24, but... But, so 12 is going to be significant for the fullness of God's people. You've got the fullness of each tribe, right? And the way they're described, so these aren't flaming Jewish evangelists in the tribulation. This is a way to present the church. But then there's another picture of the church in chapter 7. And after these things, I looked, this verse 9, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, tribe, uh, peoples, and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And you get this other glorious picture of the people of God. They're singing, salvation belongs to our God. They're worshiping God, and they are finally at rest. So what happens is, you have the six, uh, the, the, the seals, the sixth seal is the final judgment. Then you have a picture of the redeemed from two different angles. And then you resume with the seventh seal, which then opens up for, in a sense, the, uh, the trumpets. All right? So then the trumpets are blown. And again, judgment, judgment, judgment. And what happens at the end of that? Well, take a look at 11.15. So this is the seventh trumpet. 11.15, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. By the way, everything in Revelation is loud. Okay? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. There's the hallelujah chorus. And then you have them falling down, and so, and the nations were enraged, verse 18, your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bond servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, the small and the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. So what's the picture at the, at, at the last trumpet? It is actually, again, judgment and salvation. Okay. 
Then you have 12.1 to 14.20. And you have the war with the dragon who's waging war against the woman. He tries to actually devour the man-child that's about to be born. The man-child actually ascends into heaven. Of course, this is messianic. And then what ends up happening is that the, the dragon then pursues the children of the women into the wilderness. God protects them, right? So in chapter 12, what you have is not only the war in heaven, but then the war of Satan against the people of God. And what ends up happening is then you have the revelation of the two beasts, okay? So the dragon, the dragon is actively persecuting. So it's important to see the way this works. We kind of read it, we chop it up in chapters. The dragon is, is pursuing the woman with persecution, but then you get the revelation of the beasts. And what are the beasts doing? The beasts actually are trying to allure people to worship, to loyalty, okay? So instead of being one of the 144,000 that has the seal of God on your forehead, you have a phony seal, right? You have a counterfeit seal, right? The mark of the beast, okay? And so... um, then you have um, the seven bowls of wrath from 15.1 to 16.22. There's a few interludes in there. All of these um, have the propensity towards sevens. And so then if you just flip over at the end of the bowls, This is 1617, then the seventh angel poured out the bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. What's done? Well, the judgment's done. There were flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, great earthquake. This all sounds familiar, right? Such as had not been since man came to be upon the earth, so a great earthquake, it was so mighty the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Every island fled away. By the way, this is six seal stuff. And the mountains were not found. Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds, came down from the heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely uh, extreme. And so once again, what do you have? You, and, and so as you have the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, they also, they're not just parallel, but they intensify and escalate, right? Okay. So you go like from one-third to two-thirds, like one-third of the grass, one-third of the trees, then to two-thirds, right? The seas and the waters, so forth. Then you end up having the most extended period. So we just got introduced to Babylon. And of course, Babylon is the arch enemy. All right? Babylon is the arch enemy. And the fall of Babylon is from 171 to 1921. And it is the most extended passage on judgment in the whole book of Revelation. And so what is... In a sense, what is being portrayed, 
So um, the beast can persecute and and kill Christians. Um, But the harlot, she's drunk on the blood of the saints too, but her power is not just in, let's say, fierce, hostile persecution. Her power is in seduction. That's the power of the Babylonian harlot, is seduction. And so the church not only has to watch out for persecution, the church also has to watch out for the seduction of this world, right? So, so Babylon ends up being just absolutely, the, the, the description of judgment is extensive. She's the harlot, she's the counterfeit bride. And by the way, when she's finally destroyed, everybody stands amazed because everybody thought she was, she was just absolutely unstoppable. And of course, God brings her to an end. Then there's the consummation. I would, I would say that what Revelation 21 to 10 does is gives us another angle of the inner advent period. And then you have final judgment, 20, 11 through 15. And then you have the introduction in 21 and 22 of the new heavens, the new earth, and the true bride. All right? So um, each section parallels each other with intensification and and escalation, and I would say each section actually describes the inner advent period. Now, do I have any other reason to think that that's true other than that each one of these periods end in judgment? And the answer is yes. I actually have another reason to think that this spans the entire inner advent period, and that is because the inner advent period is continually described as 42 months, 1260 days, or three and a half days. Okay? And you say, well, how do you get that out of that? That time frame, 42 months, 1260 days, or, 300, or three and a half days, actually echoes back to the last half of the 70th week of Daniel. When is Messiah cut off in the Daniel 9, 24 to 27 prophecy? In the middle of the last week, which means after his death, you have three and a half days or time times and half a time, or 1,260 days, or, by the way, they're all referred to the same, the same period. 1,260 days and 42 months is the same. Okay? And so you have this time frame that is, so the, 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 the picture of the church age is that it's actually very short, okay? relatively speaking. Okay? It's relatively short. It basically is the last half of the last week. Now, um, what do we learn as you go through the book of Revelation? Well, first of all, judgment is certain. Judgment is certain. 
and the judgment against the dragon, against the beast, the false prophet, against the harlot, all of those are certainties. In other words, this present world is not going to continue on the way that it is. One of these days, God will bring it to a screeching halt with divine judgment. But that also means those who dwell on the earth and don't worship the lamb will be included in that judgment. So you understand that. Divine judgment is certain, and it's certain for all unbelievers and against the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, what, is, uh, what else do we learn from Revelation? Well, that is that the dragon is continually waging war against the church, right? So that's always. Now, he doesn't do it the same way all the time, all right? Sometimes, so can Satan actually um, uh, tempt the church and, and lead her into ineffectiveness through affluence? Absolutely. Can Satan try to destroy the church through persecution? Yes. So, I mean, overall, when, when you think about the church in America, what's been, what's been our Achilles heel? Persecution or affluence? Affluence. And by the way, that's just as much of a satanic tactic as persecution. And so the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and Babylon are the perpetual, perennial enemies of the people of God from generation to generation until Jesus comes back. And so the church is going to suffer, but the church is also going to reign. And the end is going to be just like the beginning, only better. Okay? And that's Revelation in a recap. Okay? Questions, comments, protests, riots, demonstrations, outbursts, or letters to the editor. Liz. No, they're, well, yeah, I'm saying they're symbolic of the entire inner Advent period. Okay. Right, right. It's, it's, it's playing off of the prophecy of Daniel 9. Yeah. Which I've bored you to tears with a few times. All right, anything else? This is it. This is it for Revelation forever. No. Uh, (laughs) Until it all happens, right before your eyes. Chad. How early... So in the early, early church, probably the first three centuries, it was relatively common for them to, for instance, look at the beast as Nero and Babylon as the Roman Empire. Um, That's the world in which they lived, okay? 
Um, and so that was the most common. By the time uh, that Augustine comes along, Augustine, uh, of course, is famous for lots of things, but one of those is, um, is the city of God and the city of man. And so he understood revelation from what we would say an amillennial perspective that may not have the details that I just went through, but had, in a sense, sort of uh, roughly a very similar framework, all right? Um, and so if you, if you um, just keep in mind that um, if revelation is, is applicable and relevant from generation to generation, all of, these, uh, all of the different interpretive views in, at some level make sense, right? So the, 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 the church that saw Nero as the beast that was, that was uh, fatally wounded and then came back, right? There's, there's actually things that fit Nero, so you can't blame the first century Christians for going, this is, this is that, right? Um, then you have another view that basically says a revelation unfolds throughout church history, but there's specific events. So um, this was, by the way, the predominant position of the reformers. So the, um, the locusts out of the pit in Revelation 9 was the Muslim hordes. Right, so so they saw they saw historical events connected, right, and then of course you end up having um, a little later the uh, the futurist view that all of these things only pertain to the end of the age. So that's probably the latest or the most recent view, I would think, um, and then uh, then the view that I've presented. And so you, but you have traces of all of these throughout. And I think that there's good reason. In, in other words, I don't look at anybody that holds a, a different view and go, oh, how, how dumb, right? Because you can understand why these views are held to, um, you know, especially when the church goes through tribulation and oppression and, and so forth, so... Do you want to add anything to that, Daniel? Oh, yeah. Okay, so if you wanted to, you go, okay, I listened to all 89 sermons. I'm not going to listen again. Let me read something. Um, this, is, this is absolutely fantastic. This is Vern Poitras. It's called The Returning King, A Guide to the Book of Revelation. You can see it's small, right? He gives a great overview of all the sections. And very, very, very helpful. A little more uh, beefy is, is this one. Uh, not beefy, it's just slightly bigger. More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. And this is sort of the classic. Hendrickson wrote this back in the 40s. Um, and it presents very similar to what, um, what I presented in 89 Sermons. Really good. Um, don't agree with everything, obviously. If you want a commentary, so Greg Beal has the best commentary in Revelation, but it's 1,100 pages, all right? So I don't know many people that are going to read 1,100 pages. But this is actually really good. Dennis Johnson, Triumph of the Lamb. Okay. By the way, we had Dennis Johnson here many, many years ago, and he was one of my teachers at uh, Westminster and this is very readable, very accessible commentary, and it's very helpful. 
there's, I, I have two, two bookshelves of Revelation material. Um, and I don't read all of it, obviously. Some of it is just for heretical reference only. But um, <laughs> one other one that's kind of good. I like it. Um, it's uh, Craig Coaster. He's, a, he's actually a Lutheran. Revelation and the End of All Things. And uh, it's kind of similar to the gray book that I showed you earlier. So if you want to come and look at at any of these and say, oh, well, I might do that for vacation this summer. Um, If you go on a long vacation, take Beal. All right. Okay. Well, Revelation has been great. I've I've been very edified personally and uh, look forward to getting into Hosea next week. Um, love the Old Testament. And um, have you announced what you're doing after you finish Colossians yet? How do people know? Is there, is there a leak in the White House? I, what's that? Yeah, so Daniel's going to do the Song of Solomon since he's done with Colossians. So... Notice, I've been preaching for 30 years here. I've never done the Song of Solomon. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's not the point. It's that... <laughs> there, there's a level of common sense. Um, anyway, looking forward to that. So, um, don't you just love being a part of, the, of a church that's all about the Bible? right? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you that it is inspired, authoritative, and sufficient. And we thank you for the book of Revelation. We pray that it would remind us that we have great hope for the future and would encourage us to be courageous and faithful in the present. And so, Father, we echo the prayer of the Apostle John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.